0: Hello,
1: everyone. Thank you for coming. Given recent developments, we at Toyota would like to reassure our customers everywhere that Toyota stands for quality. First, let me... Crap. What the... I'm sorry. The microphone stand appears to be broken. I will hold it. As I was saying, in order to demonstrate the quality of our products, we would like to show you that our cars are so safe, even your family pet can drive them. Ladies and gentlemen of the media, today's demonstration drive will be conducted by our good friend, Toonses. Toonses, take it away. Ah, Toyota just goes from bad to worse. Kind of like my Japanese. I'm Jeff Horwich, and this is In the Loop. And how long has it been, really, since you heard a good Toonses the Driving Cat reference? Too long, I think. I'll tell you what, if nothing else, uh, after all this, Prius owners, the rest of us, not really that jealous of you anymore. We got a good full random show coming up today, including what I hope is going to be a great conversation about writing letters to the president. We will talk about open sourcing the moon landing, and we're going to sing about the federal budget. But we'll start with the car thing, because even before all this Toyota stuff went down, I've been kind of itching for an update on the auto industry industry more generally. Just because I think when we were talking about Cash for Clunkers and the big auto bailout, the car companies were in the news constantly and everybody was thinking about it. And then it's been rather quiet since then, at least in the the mainstream news. And I'm just kind of wondering how the companies are doing post bailout. As it turned out, this week was a big week for car company results. All the monthly sales figures came out. Uh, Toyota, even before uh, the recall stuff was having a rough time, sales were down 16 percent in January. Ford, sold 43% more cars than they did a year ago. GM, 14% more. And Chrysler, 8% less. Uh, To have this conversation as we begin the show here, I've got Dave Cole on the phone with me. Dave is the chairman of the Center for Automotive Research, C-A-R, get it? And uh, he's been on the show before. I'm glad to have him back on In The Loop. Dave, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, it's my pleasure.
1: So I'm going to give you a, a very basic version here of what seems like the conventional wisdom from where I'm sitting. Ford, looking pretty strong. GM could go either way, and Chrysler probably still screwed. Why don't you uh, take a lunge at that? uh,
2: Yes, there still is a lot of uncertainty, and Mm -hmm. the auto industry has not been in a recession. A recession would have meant sales of about 14 million units. Uh, Last year it was around 10 million, so the auto industry has been in a depression. Right. But as things have settled down, the sales have picked up a little bit. So we have a much more optimistic picture emerging, but still with a great many uncertainties, particularly related to the future auto sales.
1: How about the, uh, the balance of success, though, among the three companies in question?
2: Here? Well, Ford is doing a fine job. And the reason that Ford did not go into bankruptcy is that they felt they were at the edge of the cliff a few years ago, and they actually mortgaged the entire company. They joke about it, even the Blue Oval Uh, to get a line of credit. And most people said, you know, that's kind of a silly thing to do. Well, when credit disappeared, Ford now was sitting with available credit, and that really is what got them through this particular period. And the good news for Ford is that they didn't go into bankruptcy. The bad news for Ford is they have a huge debt, and they were not able to get uh, the labor contract. It was voted down by the UAW at Ford that both Chrysler and GM had.
1: In hindsight, does it seem like a wise choice they made to skip the government bailout?
2: Oh, I think it is, for a number of reasons. One is is that most people don't like the idea that the government bailed out auto companies, and that's a negative in the marketplace. And they're they're taking advantage of that. They've seen, of course, profitability here in the last quarter, and things are looking very bright. But the idea is not to become comfortable. I just gave a talk last week to their North American senior management, and my role was to make sure they understand just how competitive this industry is, and how quickly things can change. For example, with what Toyota, with the safety issues, uh, the you know the unintended acceleration, the Absolutely. uh shift, dramatic shift in the uh, value of the Japanese currency, which has been a very difficult thing for Toyota. So, the tough part is never over in this business.
1: Well, since you mentioned Toyota, let me ask you quickly about that this thing with the accelerator certainly the the other car companies seem to smell blood in the water here they're all offering incentives to say bring sure, in bring in your toyotas and we'll competitive give you a deal.
2: Industry and yeah. uh, while well, the you know does the lion attack the uh, fastest Antelope in the herd? No, they they look for the weak and frail and, and wounded and old. Well, is
1: that overstating the case here? I mean, Toyota has been, you know, sort of the, the shining star, one of them, even through tough times. But... And, a,
2: and, and they're still a very fine company. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't be reluctant to uh, buy a Toyota. But any time you have something that receives this much publicity, it doesn't help. And And there are a couple of aspects to this. One of the biggest things is that perception always trails reality. Many, many years ago, when the Japanese came uh, Toyota, Honda. The cars were really very inexpensive cars, pretty good fuel economy. The quality wasn't very good. And they just absolutely busted their tails, dramatically improved the quality. And it took a while for perception to catch up with reality. And it did. And and then the Japanese cars were viewed as better quality. But over time, in the last eight ten years, the quality difference has been pretty small. But perception was trailing reality. And what this does, it really helps shift that perception uh, gap between reality relatively quickly.
1: Well, Dave, talk to me specifically about, about GM and Chrysler.
2: Well, uh, GM, as everybody knows, went bankruptcy. The government owns about 60% of the company. The union trust fund owns a hunk. and uh, uh-huh. some of You kind of get the sense
1: right now things. from reading the news that the government is running GM. Is, is that no, more or less true? No, the government
2: is not running GM. Uh-huh. They appointed a board of directors. The role of the government is absolutely minimal. In GM's situation, uh, just to give you some perspective on that, their products... They are very strong, critically acclaimed, just as Fords are. Their bankruptcy essentially eliminated debt. The, the labor contract restructuring has uh, had a huge impact on their hourly costs and their legacy costs. And when you look at what they have been doing with plant closings and restructuring their uh, general company, they're taking about five to $6,000 of cost out of the average car. We have never seen anything like that. We're going to see profitability in that company like we have not seen Chrysler is a little bit more uncertain because... Uh, They've got a
1: huge, I would think, perception problem. I mean, GM yeah, does, too. As, as you describe it, people need to come around to rea- realize well, how well, confident they be GM. But.
2: You know, Chrysler does not have a global footprint. They're over 90% in North America, and that's a problem. It doesn't have the volume. Fiat was actually in the same position. They didn't have a global footprint. They didn't have a volume. So coming together is a natural connection. Mm -hmm. It's going to take a couple of years for them to really weave their organizations together. But if the market begins to pick up like we think it will, it'll carry Chrysler with it until they really get to the point where the Chrysler and Fiat companies are folded together. And at that point, I, I think they're going to be quite competitive. So they're they're more at risk than GM or, or Ford, but they still have a have a good shot.
1: But are the automakers doing anything really exciting in the midst of all this? Are they just sort of abiding and figuring out how to keep costs down and get, get no, back on I, their feet, or are they really innovating?
2: Going on. One of them is electrification of the powertrain. The Chevrolet Volt is going to be introduced later this year. It's a plug-in electric vehicle. And if that vehicle were operated, say, on E85, which is a mixture of 15% gasoline, 85% uh, alcohol or ethanol, mm-hmm. the effective miles per gallon of gasoline out of the total field be around 400. So with electrification, the electrification, of the powertrain, amazing things are happening. Another is the connection between the highway and the car, which used to be the tire patch, is now we're moving towards electronic connection. And one of the ramifications of that was you can now electronically connect car to car. We have the potential for 90% reduction of accidents, fatalities, and injuries.
1: Cars, t- cars talking to each other, basically. In,
2: in effect, okay. yeah. It's unbelievable what is happening in this industry. And it's, uh, I, I guess because we see it, we're kind of in the middle of it, we don't realize that people across the land really don't have much of a clue as to what's going
1: on. Well, Dave, I, I hope you're right about all this, and you certainly may well be. And if so, it's great news for people in the industry and all of us, I guess. Uh, it's been good to talk with you again on nice the show to here. Chat with you as well. That's Dave Cole, chairman of the Center for Automotive Research. Want to learn more about him? Go to cargroup.org. Toyota wasn't the only gift that kept on giving this week. It was a federal budget week, fresh off a electoral drubbing in Massachusetts and a sort of meh reception to his state of the union president obama put out his 2011 federal budget proposal which uh, when this happens there's so much news made at one time that it's almost kind of hard to keep track uh, so maybe you're a real junkie for this stuff and you've been digging through it but if you're not i spent some quality time with the budget proposal so you don't have to uh, and i've managed to condense it down to about 2 minutes that you can hum in the shower and with all the acrimony in washington i would hope that this kind of approach can make funding the federal government at least a little bit more fun. What's in the budget? What's in the budget? Every year around this time we get a look. Who gets hammered? Who gets funded? Thought just in case you wondered, we'd pair it with this catchy little hook. Here we go. If you're rich, we're gunning for ya Times like these, we can't ignore ya Hedge-fud moguls, your bill is coming due Bush tax cuts are expiring, it's time to start perspiring And the capital gains tax rates rising too New taxes just for bankers, pipelines, and oil tankers But Average Joe, there's something there for you That eight-buck paycheck favor that the stimulus package gave you. It turns out you get to keep it, whoop de doo What's in the budget? Uh, Yeah, what's in the budget? budget? We should know it's civic duty, don't you think? Uh Is it a magic fiscal potion or a car wreck in slow motion? What fun negotiating on the brink? Take it up. Not much for transportation, but there's a boost for education. Might be the end of No Child Left Behind. A big increase for science and green power, self-reliance. But your journey to the moon has been declined. Well, cuts to senior housing. Wealthy farmers start your grousing and get ready for a bigger IRS. More bucks for school tuition, Justice Civil Rights Division, and scanners that can see inside your dress. Yeah, a big old cut at treasury cuz the bailout's not what we thought it'd be, I guess. That's cool. That's more than offset by how much it costs to wage two wars and such, but really, what you gonna do? What you gonna do? What's in the budget? What's in the budget? What's in the budget? What's yeah. in the budget? Finding out who loses and who wins. Now Congress gets to take it, mangle, strangle, and remake it. Just take a seat, because now the fun begins. And you know, I got to the end of recording that song, and I'd gotten a nice clean take of it, and I was just approaching the last phrase, and I realized, I never did figure out how I was going to end the darn thing, so it just kind of peters out into this... Weird little chromatic deal. I, I patched it up, all right. Anyway, there's a video of it as usual on our Facebook page, LoopFacebook.net, if you want to check it out. And speaking of Facebook, uh, I'm very excited because in the middle of the night the other night, without really uh, begging for it or holding a little fan drive or anything like that, we just quietly passed 2,000 fans on the page. Which, if you look at the statistics, that puts us in a kind of an elite group of Facebook pages. Of course, you got pages for super famous people, and they have like millions and millions and millions of fans. But uh, most pages kind of linger down in the hundreds and whatnot. But to be at 2,000 for us is not just uh, really gratifying, but it also is really useful because, of course, all those people on our Facebook page, I hope you're among them, uh, can get back to us and give us ideas and content and voices that we put on the show. So, really cool. And near as I could figure out, the 2,000 fan is someone named Whitney Taylor, who appears to be a teenage girl who lives in Boise, Idaho. And I sent her a note on Facebook to see if she wanted to do a quick interview with me as our 2000 fan. And what do you know? 32-year-old sends a note to a teenage girl on Facebook and she doesn't write back. What is up with that? Maybe she'll get back to me at some point and we'll learn a little more about Whitney. But in the meantime, let's get back to it. I mentioned in the song that the moon landing has been stricken in the proposed 2011 federal budget. This was called Project Constellation, I think. It was decreed by President Bush that we would return ourselves to the moon by 2020 great point of national pride and excitement and whatever but it's also very very expensive and so president obama wants to get rid of it i thought this would be a good occasion to put a call out to patricia phillips we haven't talked to her in a while she's one of our news nichers and those are those listeners who are out there and follow some area of the news really closely and from time to time they'll come on the show and give us a bit of a briefing well patricia i like to think of as our space lady and uh thank you very much for making some time for us today
3: glad to be back i'm just glad that you aren't calling me your spacey lady
1: <laughs> well we'll make that judgment after we complete the uh, segment here i guess Oh,
3: um,
1: patricia used to work as a public information officer for for nasa and continues that passion for space and uh, currently she's a consultant and writer in bartlesville oklahoma so the big news of course this week is president obama wants to uh, destroy the moon landing program are you kind of heartbroken over that
3: I am angry and frustrated. I know it's going to be a big, big bone of contention in Congress and throughout the country. Apollo astronaut uh, Buzz Aldrin has signed on, says he's okay with it. Apollo astronaut Gene Cernan, the last man to walk on the moon, says no, that Obama is abandoning the American dream, our initiative, and turning our back on the moon. The only thing that surprises me about this is one thing, and that is how many people are surprised by it. Huh. Obama has been telling us all along. When he was first campaigning, he was saying things like he intended to cut NASA at least
1: 30%. I'm familiar with the debate over manned spaceflight, which I guess this is sort of wrapped up into, which is, you know, it's risky and people argue that it's not all that clear that we get that much out of it compared with just sending robots up into space to do our work for us. What's, what's the argument, and I think you feel it pretty keenly, for why we should be sending people into space and to the moon?
3: mostly because of the benefits that we get back on Earth. There have been some recent experiments on the space station, which requires people to man it and to do the scientific experiments. They're now working on a good candidate for a vaccine for salmonella. Another company is working on a potential treatment for muscular dystrophy. All of the time that I've been involved with the space program, there's always been a percentage that says, we shouldn't go do this, it's a waste of money. You know, fill up the pothole in my street first. But this is how we get kids interested in science and math, and then they grow up to be researchers, doctors, engineers, and improve our lives. Hmm. Uh, This is kind of like the shining light for saying to kids, there is a valid reason to suffer through science and math.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, we all know from recent experience that President Obama can't exactly just take anything to Congress and and, uh, expect a rubber stamp. There will be people that will fight him on that, right?
3: Oh, yeah. Bill Nelson is already going to fight. He's going to hold some hearings. Senator
1: from Uh, Florida, right?
3: uh Uh-huh. And uh, Alabama representatives, Texas representatives. But I think it's a done deal. Mm -hmm. And I think the greater fear that I have and many other people have is we put the most into that beautiful International Space Station. We only have a few more flights. And after that we are grounded unless we hitch rides with somebody else.
1: Yeah. Well, at least until we have to send Bruce Willis up there to destroy an asteroid or something, we'll pull the fleet out of retirement and, and make it happen. That's how <laughs> these things work. Um, yeah. So when the space shuttle launches, what, this weekend, I think, right?
3: Yes, indeed. Are you going to watch? Yeah. <laughs> I never miss a space shuttle launch. Huh. Uh, it's launching at 4:39 a.m. That's Eastern Standard Time on Sunday, and it's a 13-day mission. Hmm. Every space mission has danger, excitement, challenge. This is true adventure. You know, you think about Indiana Jones. Well, goodness gracious, we do Indiana Jones as a matter of course at NASA.
1: Well, Patricia, thanks very much for giving us some uh, some space news here. I am sorry for your kind of grieving the uh, the moon landing thing. That's a bummer. Thank you so much. Patricia Phillips is a consultant and writer in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. She's working at the moment on a book about the space program. Now, in the midst of all this, your buddy and mine, Sandy Totten, was poking around a little bit, and he ran across an organization that is going to open source, so this is their goal anyway, to open source the moon landing. Yeah, stepping right in when NASA left off. Okay, so open source is a big buzzword right now. We all kind of know what it means, but in this context, how in the world... How in the universe would that be practically done?
4: Well, okay, so, you know, the biggest uh, open source project most of us know is Wikipedia, where anyone can contribute, and we all sort of can write things, and it adds up to this giant, awesome encyclopedia. Uh This is basically a space program working under the same principles. They are dedicated to get into space... And anybody who wants to chip in information can. So every time they run into a problem, anytime they have a challenge they want to figure out how to deal with, they're just going to say, hey, world, this is what we're facing. We need to you know, figure out a rocket that can do this on this much fuel. Who can solve us? And if there's like rocket scientists out there or some kid who's just really into rockets who figured something out with this bottle rocket, they can all chip in some info. And hopefully at the end of the day... Boom, there you go. They've got, you know, a launchable rocket and they can get these people up on the moon. Okay, so you talked with a guy who's, what, running this organization? He's the project manager, so he's kind of the oversight Does guy. he
1: know what he's doing? Who is this guy?
4: Okay, so his name's Paul Graham. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, he's done a lot of, like, space-related projects before. He's an engineer. So he understands space pretty well and he knows the numbers. But, I mean, nothing like this has ever been tried before. And uh, he he admits that in order to pull off something like this without a budget like NASA's, you're pretty much going to have to break some rules and try some, like, you know, totally radical approaches to space travel. What's the name of the group? It's called Open Luna, and
1: their uh, motto is, your moon, your mission, get involved. Okay, so let's just play the interview here. This is Sandon Totten talking to Paul Graham, who is, what is he? he The project manager. Project manager of Open Luna. (laughs)
4: Okay, before we start this interview, I just want to totally geek out with you for a minute. Like, space! I mean, that's so awesome. It'd be so cool if you guys do this and we can get up there. I totally want to go space bowling, I want to go dirt biking on the moon, and how awesome would a trampoline be?
0: You know what I'm really looking forward to? Have you ever read A Menace from Earth?
4: No, 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 what's that?
0: It's a piece of Robert Heinlein's short story where the Luna City is built in a lava tube bubble and they fly in it. Strap wings to their arms and fly in it. That's what I want. <laughs> and, yeah, I'm with you. I want to go dirt biking on the moon. How
4: cool would that be? I know. I know. So back to the current reality. Okay. This could be dangerous. I mean, you know, there's lots of mishaps even with NASA and all their billions of dollars in planning. Are you guys not worried about that when you launch your own people up into the moon?
0: Well, let me, let me get you a couple of facts that may make you think. You know, there's a, a kind of a standard thing. You start throwing more systems at it, the failure rate goes up. The shuttle orbiter is so complicated that it's actually getting lower in safety. You also start running into some numbers that people just aren't willing to think about. A lot of people die every year in terrestrial mountaineering.
4: That, that doesn't make me feel any safer.
0: Though. It's not supposed to. What I'm saying is we're saying that risk is okay. Now, mind you, we're going to do everything in our power to keep anybody from dying. Uh-huh. We're expecting on killing at least one person. We're going to do everything we can to stop that. But the thought of space exploration being less hazardous than terrestrial mountaineering or driving to the drugstore, for that matter, is kind of ludicrous.
4: Tell me, where did this idea come from? How did you guys get started on the idea of open sourcing space missions?
0: Yeah, I've been working in simulated space for a very long time. And I realized there was this very large workforce of really talented amateurs who would do it for nothing more than the love of the mission. And I thought, well, why are we wasting our time doing simulations? Why don't we just do it for real?
4: What exactly is the amount of money you think it's going to take to get you guys up and going and on the moon?
0: We're calling the entire mission budget five hundred to seven hundred million dollars.
4: That yeah, and that's not a lot when you consider that's not a lot. That's an much... order of
0: magnitude less than you would think of. You know, we like to say that NASA went there in a beach twin. We're going in an ultralight. The bare absolute minimum you can get away with to make the mission happen. We're trying to do a Lindbergh because we remember what happened with Lindbergh. Going across the Atlantic one-stop, engineers knew it could be done, but no one pulled it off. A couple people tried, and they died doing it. Go back to your risk question. And then finally, Lindbergh did it. Do you know how long it was for the first passenger after Lindbergh? A week. Do you know how long it was before there was regularly scheduled flights? A month shy of two years. So from it can't be done to... We're doing this so regularly that you have a schedule. Was less than two years.
4: You know, at the end of the day, what you're trying to do is reinvent the way people are dealing with space. Uh, and I, I read your website, and all over that, you sort of say, you know, the, the Apollo mission in the '60s was such a big deal; it changed the way people thought. It changed our, you know, our country's mood. Mm-hmm. But what do you guys say about the fact that, I mean, space seems to be less and less a priority for uh, the the presidential administration? Maybe there's some reason to that. I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of problems that need to be solved right here on Earth.
0: Well, first off, humankind needs to get off this rock, plain and simple. There's any number of species-ending events that could happen. And honestly, humankind does one of two things. Throughout humankind's existence, we either explore or we stagnate and die. What caused the end of the Roman Empire? They had conquered all there was to conquer, stagnated, and died. And through the tech that we develop for space, we will solve the problems on Earth. The technologies for developing low-impact agriculture or aquaculture, because we, have to, we will have to grow our own food in space in a very resource-limited environment. We'll have to develop better energy systems for space, all of which will solve problems on Earth.
4: Well, Paul, this has been really awesome. This is some great stuff. And uh, thanks again for taking some time
1: to talk with me.
0: Well, thank you for taking the interest. appreciate it. really do.
1: Okay, so we're back uh, on planet Earth here, sending to me. And uh, that was really interesting. I just had to say my total just like what the moment is when he says, we fully expect that someone's going to die along the way.
4: Yeah, well, I think they're willing to take the risk. Uh, and he said they already have tons of people who signed up to want to be their first astronauts. So, you know, for that chance at glory, I think there are people who are willing to take that uh, that big risk. Let's just
1: say that they could do it. Uh-huh. Would you trust an open-sourced moon rocket to get you there and back?
4: <laughs> well, yeah, but maybe not the first couple rounds. You know, I'd want to see them go up a few times before I uh, would, you know, buy my ticket. Do they have, like, a specific plan? What's the first thing they're going to do? So the first thing they're going to do is, once they get a rocket together, is, is launch up some uh, some robots, basically, that'll pop out of this uh, ship and go and set up some camps you know, some little sites for uh, future landings. And then the next one that goes up is going to have one person, uh, a tent and some equipment. And that person's just basically going to start building a little base there. And is that going to be this guy? <laughs> I don't know if it's going to be him. Uh, whoever it's going to be, they're going to have to be pretty hardy because uh, they're going to be going, you know, Kind of by themselves, and have to live in this suit for two weeks, and they're just going to have to rough it in space. It's like the ultimate camping adventure. But you know, I'm sure they could sign up some like you know extreme sports guy to do it. Or I think it should be this guy (laughs) because
1: he's the guy who's talking it up. Shouldn't he be the first one to put his feet down on lunar soil? And then you know, I think he might want to. He might he might be into it. So we'll see. Okay, what was his name again? Paul Graham. All right, Paul Graham, and the organization is called Open Luna. Sandon, talk to him. Thanks for coming in, Sandon. No problem. So our space lady, Patricia, I should say, before we move on, uh, she's a member of our Public Insight Network. If she were not, we would never have known she was out there. And if you're not, how are we going to know that you're out there? You never know. If you have a news niche or if you just uh, sort of want to keep up with the show and maybe chime in from time to time, please sign up. Go to InTheLoopShow.net and click Join the Network on the right-hand side of the page. Patricia, I'm sure, has a thing or two that she would like to say to President Obama. Uh, Nowadays, I bet lots of us have things that we'd like to say to the president. But how many of us really take the time to write it out and send that message off. Not many, because really, what's the point, right? What's the chance that your message is going to get through? Well, I don't remember exactly where we first ran across this guy who's just joining me in the studio here. His name is Brett Ortler. Uh, He lives in Isanti, Minnesota, a little ways north of here. Brett, thanks for coming in. Thanks a lot. So you have been writing letters to President Obama uh, since he was inaugurated. For a while, you were doing it every single day.
5: Yeah, I did it every day for about, oh, I want to say a month or so. I took a break. Now I'm writing them every couple of days, every other day. Um, I, I wrote the first one just on a whim. I saw Obama in a White Sox hat and I was uh, incensed because I'm a rabid Twins fan. So I decided to write him a letter saying it was not in line with his economic policies and it took off from there. Uh, I posted it on Gather. And the next day, I go check my little views thing and it said uh, that people like them. And it was an excuse to get me to write I'm trained as a creative writer more than anything, and uh, so I kept doing it. So did you bring the first letter that you wrote to uh, him? Yes. Is that, is that uh, what yeah. you have here? All you right, what,
1: it. Why don't we, before I ask you many more, more questions, why don't we just get a
5: sample of your correspondence with the president? All right. Dear President Obama, I'm writing with a pressing policy concern. I'd like to question your policy of supporting the Chicago White Sox to the detriment of the Minnesota Twins. I think such support is inconsistent with your economic policies. You've made it clear that we should be focusing on Main Street, not Wall Street. The Minnesota Twins are Main Street all the way. For instance, we don't play in some flashy, rich stadium. We play in a stadium that looks like a marshmallow. The Jumbotron at the Metrodome, it features an advertisement for sausage. Now sure, you probably know we're getting a new stadium next year. And I'll admit, it does look nice. But we're still not rolling in the wealth here in Minnesota. First of all, we couldn't even afford a roof for a stadium. Instantly making the new stadium the Lambeau Field of baseball. And yes, in case you're wondering, there will be heating. But it'll be piped in from the trash incinerator. Which is located right next door. So, you've written how many letters now? I'm on 59. Aside from the, the Minnesota Twins, what's the subject matter that you've covered in the course of all these letters? Well, a, a lot of really <laughs> random stuff <laughs> board games, aliens, uh, Area 51. What do you discuss? Okay, those are both alien related well, topics. Well, yes, is okay, it, sorry.
1: Does <laughs> is it, is it come up a lot? And what well, do, yeah, do you I'm, I'm, with I'm a bit random.
5: Sometimes some a, a lot of topical stuff. So, I'll touch on healthcare and then I'll go somewhere completely different.
1: What's your goal? I mean, Do you, you actually want him to read them or is this really, as you, as you sort
5: of said, just kind of writing practice for you? Well, I'm not expecting a palsy response or anything. I mean, clearly they're silly and asinine. When he came into office, he had things. I mean, it was pretty bad. It, the Onion had an article. Uh, their headline was Black Man Given Worst Job in America. And, you know, I, I'm hoping one of these would get through and cheer him up. You know, I'm not trying to sway him in that respect. But What do you know about the process at the White House that sifts through letters like yours? As I understand it, and this is in a New York Times story, they read everything they get, but there's a person in charge of the uh, delivering mail to the president. He picks 10 letters uh, a day, I believe, and uh, usually they're hard-hitting letters, a lot, of, a lot of critical letters. I don't think I've ever been in that 10, but I'm hoping I can be.
1: Well, we're going to do something kind of um, very, very mildly Jerry Springer-ish here. And because, <laughs> because I have somebody on the other line here, and he's in Cleveland, and I'm going to bring up his channel here. Uh, And this is uh, Justin Strakel. Justin, are you there? Yeah, yeah, I am. Hey, thanks for hanging out. Justin's been listening to the conversation we've had so far. All right. And Justin is a a junior at Cleveland State University. And he just came off a stint as a White House intern. Right, Justin? Yep. Yeah. Whose job was to to deal with these letters. And how, how would you describe exactly how your job worked?
6: Basically, I was the first eyes on the mail every single day. Brett, I read a couple of your letters, and they definitely were entertaining. We, uh, we shared them around the office, and a lot of the staffers really appreciated them. You actually read his letters? No way.
5: Specifically? Yeah. Can't believe it. That's fantastic.
1: So what typically happens to, to letters like Brett's? I would think they just get completely buried.
6: The letters like his that he sent in, the funny ones, you know, we'll definitely will pass those around the office. Uh, those kind of things, you know, tend to pick up the spirits of, of the office overall, which is definitely you know, needed when, when we get so many letters that are very depressing, very sad of, of people's personal situations that are in a lot tougher position than most of us are blessed mm-hmm. to be in.
1: But none of Brett's letters, to your knowledge, ever did make it to the president,
6: right? Uh, no, I'm I'm pretty sure they probably did not. <laughs> well, uh-huh. how did you... So- sorry to tell you that, That's but right. um, well, he's to not, my g- knowledge, He's no. not given
1: up yet. Does that change your perspective on, on having done this, Brett, and knowing that the letters were actually... Noticed and uh, yeah, that's, appreciated that's kinda Sagwana. nice.
5: I mean it's, it's, I was hoping that was the case. And that you know, that, that would be my that was really my best case scenario what I think would happen. Well I think the best case scenario is it goes well, to the yeah, president. Suppose, he calls you personally <laughs> on the phone <laughs> we go hang out and says I'm like, a big twins fan now. Go to Camp David, <laughs> you know. How
1: did you decide which ten pieces of correspondence, if that's if that's not apocryphal, if that's correct? Uh, how do you decide mm-hmm. what goes to the president?
6: What we tried to do is we tried to get an accurate reflection of what we get every day in the mail you know if we if we got about 30% of the mail being about healthcare reform then we would do 3 of 10 letters uh, about healthcare reform
1: are there a lot of other people out there justin who are like brett who are writing every single day or close to it
6: there uh, there are quite a few one that i think was one of my personal favorites was a girl who lived in philadelphia who's a college student and she made it one of her projects to send in a letter every day with a story about how she found change on the ground, and she would include that change to help pay down the national debt.
1: Wow. <laughs> well, what do you do um, with the change? Do you have a little national debt piggy bank <laughs> on hand? No, actually,
6: when, with what she did was she would actually send the money directly to the Office of the Treasury. So I don't know what they did with her, you know, ranging from 6 to 70 cents a day. They actually take donations.
5: They're, they're on, their, <laughs> on their website. They actually do yeah. actually accept donations.
6: Oh, wow, I did not know that.
1: Of the people who are writing very frequently and who you see again and again, are, are most of those relatively healthy outlets for, the, for those people or is it disturbing more often than not?
6: We, we would get a few suicide notes, um, but those we would we would staff out to the local authorities on that to go check on the person, make sure that they're okay. There were some people who were quite questionable. Uh, There's a gentleman who writes in every other week that starts his letter saying, Dear President Obama, will you please redirect this letter to Britney Spears? Huh. <laughs> the following body of the letter was, Dear Britney, <laughs> why won't you write me back? Why don't you call me? I've been writing to you for years. Leave I love Britney you. alone. Um, be my girlfriend. <laughs> I l- That's you actually know. me too. <laughs> you, you, you don't have a department for that, I presume? <laughs> no, we don't. I don't think the president and Britney Spears are too close of friends. she we, make a great we, secretary of state. Come on. We've been surprised <laughs> before.
1: Justin, what what would you say that you learned, and this may be a really broad question, but do your best. <laughs> okay. It, uh, what would you say that you learned about the American public by all those months of, of reading what they write to the president?
6: You know, all those politicians who are out there and who discuss the spirit of the American people, they're full of it. There, There is no such thing that, that is the spirit of the American people. It's... Uh, you know, the, d- the diversity in this country is massive, but everyone just wants to live a happy life. How they view that, how they think will be the best means to accomplish that, those opinions
5: vary greatly.
1: Brett, did you have any other letters that uh, maybe you have wanted to read an excerpt of before we yeah, sure. let you guys go? All
5: right. All right. Letter President Obama, number two, subject, please be less beautiful and talented. Dear President Obama, as you may remember, <laughs> I wrote you a letter congratulating you on your election victory. I complimented you on your, quote, historic victory in your beautiful family. As it turns out, your family's a little too beautiful. What I mean is, after seeing your beautiful family on television, in magazines, and on the front pages of the papers, it has some of us feeling a little frumpy. For instance, my (laughs) girlfriend and I were in the grocery checkout aisle. Your wife, Michelle, was featured on a magazine cover, and my girlfriend commented on how well-toned and sculpted Michelle's arms were. We both then looked down at the conveyor belt and the entirety of our grocery purchases for the day. Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream, chocolate syrup, and hot fudge. Then my girlfriend and I looked at each other and our rather jiggly arms. We frowned, picked up our items, and got out of line. Long story short, we ended up eating sorbet instead. And I blame you, Mr. President, for this variety of grocery self-censorship. And you speak so well. I mean, when former President Bush made his infamous Our Children is Learning slip, I felt like a genius, like a regular Ken Jennings. I'd never have made that mistake. (laughs) For once, I feel myself waxing nostalgic about the Bush administration. To make the rest of us feel better, please stammer once in a while. Secondly, it'd be great if you and your or your family could be photographed in a less than flattering outfit. I'm confident these steps would help our national self esteem. Please take them to consideration sincerely Brett Orner. thanks, Brett. yep. Justin, did you guys have a special pile for letters that uh, talked at length about how hot Michelle Obama is?
6: <laughs> <laughs> there were quite a few creepers who wrote in about that. <laughs> Um, and do, there, did those letters were... go to the first lady's office? We, like we send them to, them them to the first lady's and... office because it's, it's their responsibility to, to take care of that. I don't <laughs> know what them. they <laughs> did with them.
1: Um, yeah. Before we let you go, do you guys have any questions for each other?
5: Any secret heading I put at the top? Or Actually, yes, I, I can give
6: you a, a little secret. Um, you can write the word sample and pencil at the top left corner of your letter. Because what we do when when we're going through all the letters and we code them to be about different issues is we write it in, in pencil in the top left corner. So if you write sample... <laughs> It uh, And it might sneak past the volunteers, and uh, it'll be in the pool of letters for consideration to be in the 10.
1: The first lady's arms are so beautiful.
6: <laughs> Sample.
1: <laughs> well, I'm glad we could uh, get you guys together virtually here. Uh, Justin Strakel's in Cleveland. He's a junior at Cleveland State University. Thanks, Justin. Thank you. And Brett Ortler edits a literary journal. It's called Knockout, and he lives in Isanti, Minnesota. Brad, thanks for coming in today. Thanks a lot. And thanks, everybody, for listening. This is the end of the podcast, and I'm not going to belabor the end of the podcast because, I'll be honest, I am out of here for a week. I've got a cheap place to stay. I'm going to Florida to visit some friends for a week, and I am just so looking forward to escaping the snow for a bit. I'll just say that when I come back, we are going to be having our membership drive here at Minnesota Public Radio. And you remember last time we had a little link you could click Uh, If you were becoming a new or renewing member and you wanted to just show a little support for In The Loop, well, we've gotten a little more sophisticated this time around. And in fact, we should be able to track memberships sort of into the process and get kind of a 30,000 foot level view of members who care about the show and how much collectively they may have given and uh, all that kind of stuff. So think about that. It's coming up in a couple of weeks and... If you do want to show that you uh, appreciate the show and, and public radio in general and Minnesota public radio, of course, but in the loop specifically, we will have some very specific links that you can go through to take care of your membership. And uh, Sandin and I, most of all, among everybody, will certainly be be grateful to see that. So stay tuned for details. Watch the Facebook page. Watch our regular web page and keep listening to the podcast. We're produced by Sandin Totten with Anna Waggle, and me. I'm Jeff Horwich. I will talk to you well maybe in 2 weeks. Santa might have something special for you next week. We'll see. Stay tuned.